But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the nerve... Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? And you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response when a pigeon pecking Welcome back to Spit and Twitch's the Animal Cognition Podcast. I'm your host. Dave Broadbeck. On episode 17, uh, I've got a conversation with Reggie Gazes. Uh, I've known Reggie for quite a while because Reggie uh, did her PhD with Rob Hampton, who's an old uh, lab mate of mine back in Shuttleworth's lab. As usual, I can turn these things always into something about me. Uh, Reggie's at Bucknell University, where she's an assistant professor of psychology and animal behavior. She actually received her undergrad degree there uh, in 2004, uh, and then went on, as I said, to work with Rob at uh, Emory University in, in Atlanta. Uh, I think she got her degree there in 2012, then does a postdoc at uh, uh, Zoo Atlanta, and now she's back, as I said, at her alma mater, so we'll talk a little bit about that. That might be a little bit odd for her. We had another guest in the podcast, Lori Bloomfield, who's gone through that, of course, my colleague, my department chair, she's sort of my boss, um, uh, here, I mean, I taught Lori, and now she's my, kind of my boss, but not really my boss, but you know, sort of. Uh, so yeah, uh, the, we will talk a little bit about that, but of course, we'll also talk about her research, which... Uh, involves uh, different kinds of uh, primates. You've got four different kinds of primates uh, at her lab. Uh, there's squirrel monkeys, capuchin monkeys, uh, macaques, and, oh, I can't remember what the other one is. And I had notes, and I just didn't take I'm doing this one. I'm doing it without a net. S- screw it. We'll do it live. Anyway, uh, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, some of the really neat work she's done. Uh, also, comparative stuff that she's, she does, of course, with uh, not just with non-human animals, but also uh, with humans. So she's done some neat stuff with uh, infants uh, and uh, transitive inference. So we'll talk about that. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Reggie Gazes. Hey, Reggie, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Okay. Okay. Uh, how are things in the, I believe it's the Keystone State. Is that correct? Yes, we are the Keystone State. What does that uh, mean? Good. We finally got a little bit of snow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's been kind of a lame winter, but okay. we have a dusting, so that's something. Okay. Yeah. It's minus 23 here. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's kind of chilly. It's going down to minus 28 tonight. I've got a friend who's in the Army, and he said, and we got to go training. <laughs> so... <laughs> Is that cold for Canada, or is that kind of normal? Uh, that's, it's it's normal for it's a little chilly for here, but it's okay. it's not unheard of. You know, uh, we got down to minus twenty eight at one point this year. That was cold. Oh, that was when we found out we needed a new battery for the car. <laughs> you don't have to plug the car in. Though? Uh, there's this whole sort of I don't know. I guess it's superstition that once you plug it in once, it sort of learns that it has to, that it gets plugged. I don't think that's true. <laughs> but our battery was three years old, and we had a really severe cold winter last year. So I think it killed all the. What are they? It's the cranking amps. Now I tell you, hey, it's got to be enough cranking amps. You know, uh, <laughs> it's like every guy who opens the hood of a car, he looks at it and goes, "It's probably the alternator," because that's the one part of the car he's heard of. Yeah, I've actually had my alternator go, so now I always think it's the alternator. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're so you're in uh, at, at Bucknell, right? Yep. Uh, I think, was it Brett Gibson I talked to? I think he might have gone to school there. Yeah, he did his master's here. Right. 
Um, are you from that part of the world? Is that where you went to school there because you were from that part of the world? or Vaguely. I'm from New York, so it's like okay. three hours away from us here. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I ended up here. I actually went here as an undergrad. Um, right. Did not think I would be back here again as a professor, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I just uh, I was looking for an animal behavior program, and we've got a pretty good one. So that's how I started here, and how I ended up back here. So you, you were actually looking for that at a high school. You were looking for an animal behavior program. Yeah, you know, I was always really uh, into animals, and like everybody, I kind of thought I'd be a veterinarian. Sure. Uh, but then I realized I'm, I'm not very good with blood or stress, <laughs> uh, so I just kind of <laughs> that kind of died and. I found out that you could actually study animals for a living. Right. So uh, I looked for animal behavior programs, and there's only actually six of them in the States. Hmm. So there wasn't that many options. So I ended up I ended up here, and nice. it worked out really well for me, obviously. <laughs> I guess so. What's it like being back now that you're a faculty member? Uh, it's good. It, it doesn't really feel the same. You know, a lot of the professors I had here are retired now, sure. um, and, you know, it's been a while. So it's not as weird as I thought it would be. Right. Uh, and it's been great because like I came right in, I knew the lab, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in the same lab. Some of the animals are the same as huh. they were when I was here, which is awesome. Neat. Um, yeah. So it's been, the learning curve was, was nice. Yeah. I guess you'd know, you know, where stuff is, which yeah, is half exactly. the battle of starting a new job. Right. <laughs> so you, you did your undergrad there. Uh, did you do like uh, research when you were there as well as an undergrad or? Yeah. Yeah. I worked with the primates here pretty much the whole time I was here. I started my first year. Um, and then kept up in the lab, did some summer research stuff, did a little honors thesis project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's actually really what started me on the primate research front, um, right. where I'm still headed, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. Um, and then you went on to Emory and worked with uh, my old buddy Rob Hampton, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. What, what, why did you decide uh, that that was the place to go? Uh, well, you know, I was looking for programs that did sort of cognition and behavior in primates, which is what I had done as an undergrad and what I was really interested in. And I actually did not apply to work with Rob because Rob had just started. Um, mm. That was his first year. Okay. So I didn't know who he was. <laughs> mm. um, and I applied for someone else's lab um, and Rob saw my application and I had actually applied to be his research tech the year before. Ah. Um, and got the job and actually turned it down. <laughs> uh, so I guess when he saw me, he's like, I remember that girl and wasn't angry enough at my turning him down to reject me. So, uh, I somehow ended up in his lab, which was great. You know, it turned out really well for me. So you were his first graduate student. I was, yeah. Ben Basil and I came in the same year, but oh, okay. I was trying to graduate. <laughs> right. Um, what, what kind of stuff did you do for your PhD stuff? Uh, I was doing a lot of cognition stuff down there. So Rob, uh, Rob's love, we had rhesus monkeys, uh, which are really interesting. Um, so studied a lot of stuff about basically transitive inference was kind of like the big project I worked on, but just trying to figure out kind of the mechanisms behind some of the cognitive processes that sure. we see primates. Um, and while I was down there, I got really into looking at cognition in socially housed animals, right? which, uh, you know, can be hard to do because wild animals are often socially living, but hard to do cognitive work on. And um, animals in the lab are often easy to do cognitive work on, but they don't usually live in social housing. So right. um, we got pretty lucky to have the opportunity to, to do that down there. And that, that's, you know, what I'm still doing now, which is, which is pretty fun. Sure. Um, you got interested in this transitive inference stuff, as you said, and this is something, I mean, I, I remember that was a, it was a big thing. Sort of people started looking at it in animals, at least in the 90s that I remember, because I remember I was a postdoc in Bill Roberts' lab and Maria Phelps was working on that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And she had this weird ziggurat of some sort, which I never um, – <laughs> But I, I remember that part, uh, and, and you're you're sort of st- that's a lot of the stuff that you're sort of still into, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so. yeah, so I mean, uh, you, you sent me a couple papers, uh, and it's pretty cool because you got <clears throat> excuse me one that looked at uh, uh, people. Now, were they kids or they were adults? I couldn't. Uh, we, I had, so two papers I sent you. Right. One of them is infants, like yes. ten months old, um, and the other one is adults under well undergraduate. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, that one compared adults and uh, monkeys. Yes. Yeah. 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 So we did the same experiment in adults and in rhesus monkeys. Um, and uh, you, you found that there was importance of, of, of spatial uh, sort of spatial encoding. Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, there's these trends of inferences is kind of weird phenomenon in that, like, we see it in a lot of animals. Sure. And you know, part of the question is kind of why? Like in humans, we think about transitive inference as this sort of like philosophy, logic, or mm-hmm. maybe math process. Yeah. So, you know, like why can a fish do that? You know, it seems a little bit odd. So there's this theory that part of the reason that we're good at transitive inference and that animals are good at transitive inference is that it's just a really useful way of learning information, particularly maybe social information. Right. So like dominance hierarchies, mm-hmm. which are really linear and where, you know, you have an option to kind of like fight it out with everybody in your group if you want to figure out where you fit. Yes. But if you could learn by just observing, say, interactions between a few others and saying, oh, that guy, I remember he beat me yesterday and this bigger guy just beat him now. I should probably just avoid that that bigger guy. Right. Um, you know, you'd save yourself a lot of trouble. Um, so there's a theory that maybe this may be mediated by some sort of spatial representation that would help you keep track of this, you know? So like almost a little line mm-hmm. or an order of the dominance hierarchy in your group, or in the case of our experiment, it was just pictures, right? So right. Um, just a representation of those pictures in an order. And we kind of found in humans, if you train them on a spatial representation, it actually helps them learn mm-hmm. a transitive inference set. Right. Um, and in monkeys, we found almost that, but it's a little more complicated, the story. But it seems like there is some benefit to knowing something about spatial information. Right. So do you think that – I mean, this is maybe kind of a silly question, but I'm known for that. Um, <laughs> is, 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 is the spatial thing as important as having a social sort of uh, system? Do you think that both of those things play a role? Do you think one's more important than the other or? Oh, it's, I mean, it's a really good question. I don't think we know the answer. You know, there's some good data out there suggesting that maybe animals that live really complicated social lives mm-hmm. are particularly good at transitive inference. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's some work in lemurs where um, more social lemurs are sort of better at transitive inference. Al Camel's done a lot of really cool stuff yeah. trying to tease apart this, like, um, you know, birds that store a lot of seeds, so, you know, have good spatial cognition versus birds that live in social groups and like which factors influence transitive inference performance. Right. But it's a little hard to tease it all out, you know, cause everybody's got a social system and some sort of feeding ecology. So you can't really right. figure out which things are the main ones. Um, would you, how would you attack something like that in, I mean, I guess you don't have any non-social, I'm trying to get non-social primates you could use, but that's not really a thing, is it? Yeah, it's not really a thing. Lemurs are the best option, really, because in that group of animals, there are some that are either solitary or, or just pair living. Right. Um, and so the 
some folks down at Duke have done a little bit of work with that. But, you know, there's different degrees of sociality. So, you know, some primate species don't have linear dominance hierarchies. Okay. So in order to use transitive inference, you really have to have a linear representation. Because if you've got something where, you know, like A is dominant to B, B is dominant to C, and C is dominant to A, right. then inference doesn't help you out at all. Because knowing anything about those relationships, you can't infer anything about the others. Right. Um, so, you know, if we have primates that have social systems that are a little more fluid or have these circularities in them, then you would maybe expect that they wouldn't be as good at transitive inference. Okay. So we can try to do that. And, um, you know, that's why we try and do comparative cognition, try and get Indeed. data from as many species as we can. So right. we're working on that a little bit now because we've got, um, you know, most of the work has been done in rhesus monkeys when looking at primate transitive inference. So right now we're trying to get some data from other species too. Um, oh, I guess I should just be clear to people that don't know this stuff that transitive inference is the idea that if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, then A is definitely greater than C. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I guess, no, I, I should have made that clear to people who aren't, uh, don't, don't follow this stuff uh, that closely. I know we actually do have some listeners that don't do research in animal, animal cognition, which, hi, Jason. Uh, <laughs> hi, Doug. There's a few, Diane, there's a few people that have commented to me. So um, Now, to me, one of the things that, that I've really found out doing this podcast is that uh, people that do work with uh, animals really have a, sort of a, a kinship with people that do work with infants. Uh, and I, we've heard in the background your infant, <laughs> uh, which is cool. Congratulations. Um, but uh, you've done some work recently, and you, you mentioned this, uh, with, with, with these, I guess, nine and 10-month-old babies, right? Yeah. Yeah, we did. and. Um, yeah, so, so that was kind of interesting because the transitive inference was this thing Piaget actually kind of identified. Right. He thought it was one, one of these abilities that comes on pretty late in life, so not till you're about seven years old. Sure. Um, but then there was some work done in the 80s where they found that four-year-olds could do transitive inference if you gave them enough experience. So basically, you know, the only reason seven-year-olds could do it and younger kids couldn't was they thought it was a memory issue. Okay. So if you overcame that memory issue through training, then the younger kids could do it. But, you know, with all the stuff we've been talking about, about why we think people or animals can do transitive inference, young infants have a lot of the cognitive abilities that seem to go with transitive inference. Mm -hmm. So they're pretty good at ordering things like number or size. Um, they do seem to be picking up on dominance relationships. Yeah observation. So we thought, you know, if the theory is right, that transitive inference maybe was driven by pressures to learn social relationships, then mm -hmm. maybe if we test kids in the social domain, uh, they might show inference at a really young age where they wouldn't in some non-social domain. Right. Um, so yeah, we, we created, this is what, you know, what I refer to as my cutest experiment ever. <laughs> we created this puppet hierarchy where the puppets are battling over a toy that okay. they like. So the kids watch this little puppet show where um, there's an elephant and the elephant's playing with the toy. And then the bear steals the toy from the elephant. And the elephant starts to cry. And then the bear plays with the toy. And then the hippo steals the toy from the bear and the bear starts to cry. And then what we do is we show them videos with the hippo and the elephant. Mm -hmm where it's either that the hippo takes the elephant's toy, yes. which is congruent with what you'd expect if you had inferred a little hierarchy out of these animals, right? Um, or where the elephant takes the hippo's toy, which is pretty surprising if you had inferred this little dominance hierarchy. Right. And what we find is that these infants look a lot longer 
at the video when it's incongruent, which we know they tend to look longer at things that are surprising to them. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so it suggests that at least, you know, not at an explicit level necessarily, but at least at an implicit level that they are learning something about these relationships and can make these inferences. I love that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I had a friend when I was a postdoc, uh, there was another guy who came as a postdoc in a developmental lab and he was working with 12 hour old infants. Wow. Uh, and we used to, he said, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd go to the hospital, <laughs> you'd, say, you'd say to the, you know, the, the, the obstetrics department, what I have to do is I want to do these, the science. So could I get people to sign a consent form? <laughs> and he, he was amazed that people would do it, but he was, he was doing this kind of thing, you know, just gazing and, uh, even in, in little kids that old, I mean, in, for the longest time, I don't think people thought babies could even see at that age. Um, yeah. And stuff with sounds as well. And we would sit and talk. Uh, he, I remember he and I realizing that we had so much in common and not really, you know, ever thinking. I mean, I, this may say, this is going to sound really a little jerky, but I've always thought that sort of developmental psychology was just people that really liked kids. And <laughs> and you, you find out, uh, I guess your biases, right, that. No, they're doing cool science, and and it's really, really related to the kind of work that we end up doing because you're trying to infer cognition or measure cognition in something that can't just answer a question for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's why I think there's so much overlap between yeah. the developmental world and the animal world because we can basically lift their methods. You know, they're, they're, yeah. they work pretty well in animals, at least in primates. Totally. Um, yeah, Ed Wasserman was saying that the other day that uh, he thought that, you know, we, people talk about neuroscience, 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 but I mean, we've got kindred spirits over there just down the hall doing developmental work. Yeah. Um, speaking of neuroscience, I mean, that was something Rob's lab has that sort of two pronged thing where he's doing sort of cognitive stuff. But I mean, Rob's got a real neuroscience background. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I remember in graduate school, him saying, uh, deciding he wanted to do stuff with lesions in that. And I remember Sarah Shuttleworth saying, well, you're going to have to learn how to do that yourself. <laughs> 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 Go find someone who can teach you that because that's not what I do. And uh, he did. Yeah, and he did. Yeah. Uh, now, did you get involved in any of that kind of stuff in Rob's lab? Uh, or, and if so, or, well, first of all, yeah. Did you get involved in any of that kind of stuff? Uh, not much of it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more on the behavior end of things. Sure. Obviously, you know, really interesting to look at the neural underpinnings oh, yeah. and stuff, but um, that wasn't really my main focus. But we did have access to some animals with hippocampal lesions. Sure. Um, and we looked at transitive inference in those animals because, you know, if we're talking about spatial representations underlying inference, then it seems likely that the hippocampus would be involved mm -hmm. uh, since it's been pretty sure. well implicated in, you know, spatial cognition. Um, and ordinal cognition. So we looked at um, we looked at those animals while I was there. We kind of have some mystery results that we haven't figured out what they mean yet. <laughs> so we're working on those. But right. that's kind of the extent of the neuro work that sure. I've done. What uh, so, so what what was it that drew you drives you more to the behavioral side than to the uh, to, to, to the sort of neural side? Which I mean, I'm I'm uh, on the same team as you, by the way. So. What, what what draws you more to these sort of cognitive questions that can be that are answered with sort of clever experiments, uh, behavioral experiments? That's a really good question. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure that I know the answer to it. I don't uh, think I, I know why I feel that way either. So <laughs> yeah, I just kind of do. Um, I, you know, I guess I've always really been interested in you know, like you're a little kid, right? You watch animals, yes, and they're really fascinating. And then 
as you learn more and more about animals, the more time you spend watching them, I think the more interesting they get because you start to say, oh, like, you know, did you notice that little social interaction right there that you, you know, that you just saw um, and what that means and how complicated it was and how much memory and and cognitive processes went into that one little tiny moment, right? That one little behavior. Yes. Um, And so I've become really interested in how does the natural behavior that animals just, you know, do on their own when left to their own devices relate to how they do in cognitive tasks. Um, and so we've been here looking at stuff like we've got students, kind of an army of students recording behavioral data on our animals, Mm -hmm. just using, you know, focal samples, watching them recording everything they do, learning the dominance hierarchy, learning who interacts with whom, who's kind of better at some social interactions than others. And then trying to see if that relates in any way to their cognitive skills. Um, because, at the end of the day, cognition must have been driven in some way um, by pressures from behavior, right? Sure. That's, that's what we all think. So um, trying to understand that has just always kind of been, I think, what really got me. Okay. Th- that's, that's as good an answer as – better an answer, I think, that I'd give. Um, now, your animals are housed socially, yeah? Yep. Does that lead to a lot of interesting research questions on its, in and of itself? Yeah, I think it does. Um, you know, stuff that you maybe wouldn't have come up with on your own. You watch the animals and mm. you say, like, wow, that was an interesting thing. We should probably try and figure out why they just did that or how they just did that. You know, right. um, they do these behaviors that maybe you'd never dream that they could on their own. So actually, this was kind of a good example. So I had, I had before I came to Bucknell, I was a postdoc um, at right. Zootlana. So it was pretty cool there. I got to work with gorillas and orangutans and lemurs. So some species that, you know, not a lot of people get to work with. And they're really fascinating. But so, you know, I came in with my research ideas and I was going to look at, you know, these things. And I had designed this task to look at um, sort of spatial cognition. So there were a bunch of little dots on a screen. And we had trained the animals that they had to touch, you know, like the third dot up from the bottom, basically. Um, And we were trying to look at, which direction they naturally oriented stuff in. So we'd like flip the the dots on the screen and see, you know, did they come from the left? Did they come from the right? That Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. So we had done this. We had trained up the animals and um, had a nice experiment. I thought, well, you know what? Let's do the reverse. So we had trained them three dots up from the bottom. Let's train them three dots from the top. So we go to train them. And this one animal is just bombing it. He just like couldn't learn it. And it was really weird because he had, he had learned a lot of other things pretty quickly. Okay. And then one day he just started doing this task hung upside down from the fencing. <laughs> and then it was the third up from the bottom still. And he just went about his business, got a hundred percent correct on that section. Nice. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just like one of those moments where you're like, okay, so there's some interesting problem solving skills going on here that maybe we should be thinking about investigating that we had never thought about, you know? Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, I love stuff like that. I mean, we used to, I remember, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in, in Bill Roberts' lab, we talk about with the monkeys, you know, seeing upside down and right side up faces was, was, was a, was a mm. question that he, he was asking. Uh, and I, I think that, now I, I may be misremembering this, but I, I think we sort of had this idea that maybe upside down faces uh, and right side up faces, they would be, they would treat no differently uh, because they're monkeys because they hang upside down. Right. Uh, I think it turned out, and this is, I think he did this with Tony Wright, actually. It turned out that it was true with, uh, with, with monkey faces, but not human faces. Mm -hmm. 
the idea, I think, is that we're the sort of supernormal stimulus of a primate, right? Right. Yeah, I, I think I'm. I, I may be misremembering that. If not, uh, if I am, uh, uh, and I made it up, let's just say it's re- it's true, and uh, people <laughs> should just start citing this episode of the podcast. Um, we'll just say it's you and I. Uh, you know, and you're more early career, so you can be first author. Uh, right. <laughs> no problem. That's what I do for the people. Um, uh, you mentioned the, the, the zoo thing. I, I, I forgot about that. I have, I have it in my notes. I actually have notes here, uh, and I, for, I forgot to bring it up. So you were like the Suzanne McDonald of Atlanta. Uh, not quite. <laughs> I mean, I was just a postdoc. Well, that's so, that's good for you, by the way. Yeah, it was it was nice. But we we had a we have a director of primate research down at Zoo Atlanta. Right. Uh, and you know they, they've got a, a kind of a rotating postdoc position, which is pretty nice. So oh, they've nice. got someone else down there now doing that work, but. But yeah, it was it was a really cool experience. I had never really been particularly interested in looking at apes. You know, I think usually your subject numbers are pretty low and they can be kind of difficult to work with. But sure. um, the yeah, the orangs and gorillas were really fascinating. We found some pretty cool stuff. I think it uh, was. Is that a? Would you think that like going doing stuff like say at a zoo, things like that, is an, is an interesting sort of career opportunity for people that are, you know, coming out of graduate school? Uh, is it something that people ought to consider? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the, the real benefit of zoos, at least from the comparative cognition side of things, sure. the comparative psychology side of things, is they have species that no one else has. You know, there are no research facilities in the country that have gorillas and orangutans. You know, you're never going to get a chance to work with them right. in a normal research environment. So, you know, we can go into zoos and really start to ask these comparative questions in ways that we can't in labs because really, I mean, you know, birds, there's a lot of diversity in labs, I think, sure. but beyond that, it's, it's pretty limited what you can keep in well, a lab. Yeah. So from that sense, it was really cool. Um, and, you know, I think zoos are really interested in research these days. It's becoming one of their main missions. Mm-hmm. So now's a really good time, too, to be to be trying to do research in zoos. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Suzanne was the first person I knew of that just did this. And then, yeah. I mean, uh, then I, I remember at CO3, there's, there's people talking about this. And, in fact, there's even people from zoos and aquariums and stuff like that that, that come and talk about stuff. Uh, so uh, it's something I think that uh, for those kids out there, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's something that you know people ought to consider. Um, do you think that uh, – I've asked people a lot about what they think is going to happen in the future of, of, of the study of comparative cognition. Do you think that it's going to get more neural? Do you think it's going to get – stay basically the way it is? I mean uh, what do you think that the future holds? I hope good things. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's heading more neural, but, you know, I think kind of the problem with it heading more neural is it's really hard to be very comparative when yeah. you get too deep into neuroscience, right? Because we don't have good maps of lots of brains. So yes, we end up right. with mostly model species, which, you know, is interesting in its own right, but from the comparative standpoint, it's, is maybe not as great. And I, I think at least in the primate end of things, it's getting a little scary out there. There's, um, you know, Harvard shut down its primate lab yeah. and NIH just shut down its field station. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm hoping <laughs> that it's, it's all good things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that part of it too is the, the notion that, you know, uh, no matter how much you know about how some neurotransmitter binds to some receptor, somebody has to do the behavior, yeah. uh, and, and, and understand that it, you know, you can't study spatial memory with a tissue culture. Yeah. Uh, you just, you yeah. know, I remember filling out a, a animal uh, uh, care committee grant, uh, sorry, of application once. And it said, you know, why can't you use a tissue culture? And I said, they have very <laughs> poor memory. I actually wrote that in the thing. Uh, history of these smart ass things I put on forms that I probably ought not to do. Yeah. Did you get that grant? Uh, yeah. 
Good. Yeah. Sarah once told me, uh, gleefully check only sci- <laughs> the only reason you're doing this is scientific uh, in- interest that has no human applicability whatsoever. <laughs> so my, my favorite one, and I, I can always make these things about me. My favorite, I got asked when I was in Newfoundland, I got asked in my job interview, um, what's the human applicability of your work on food storing birds? I said, uh, you want the short flippant answer? None. Don't care. Next question. <laughs> I got the job. So. <laughs> I was I was pretty proud of that. That's that's I peaked that day as thirty years old. Uh, <laughs> oh, Reggie, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been a, a really a great deal of fun, uh, and uh, hope to see you in a, in a couple of months at CO three. Yeah, definitely. Um, if people want to uh, check out your lab uh, online, where, do you know what the uh, URL is? Yeah, it's um, bucknell.edu/c2b2. Excellent. Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at DBroadback. You can find other podcasts I do at broken-area.com, DaveBroadback.com, MMVH.ca, BestEpisodeEver.com, TangentialConvergence.com. Uh, go to TalkingIsDead.com and search out for What's Left. If you want to hear actually two Canadian guys uh, talk about recently the American elections, which seem to oh, – you guys are having elections constantly. It's what you do. It's like your hobby. I know. It's really all we do anymore. <laughs> and uh, finally, of course, you can find me here at uh, Spit and Twitches. Thanks again, Reggie. No problem. Thanks, Dave. It's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? The main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food, but you don't reinforce every time, you're every, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. With a poster, and they were asking share the same genome and so they would try to we are a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case it's a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the, um, like the host and nevertheless 
they managed to use precise trickery to make them do what they want.